Hear the word of the Lord. And when the time had came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before we had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated, friends. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, as we turn our mind and our hearts and our attentions to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would come and do what no preacher can do. We ask that you would speak through your word to your people. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. What do Holy Saturday, engaged couples, pregnant women, horror movies, and baking bread have in common? I know it sounds like the setup for a bad joke, but I I promise it's not. What do Holy Saturday, engaged couples, pregnant women, horror movies, and baking bread have in common? Waiting. Waiting. Holy Saturday is the day that we await the resurrection of our Lord from the grave. Engaged couples await their wedding day. Pregnant women, their delivery day. Horror movies only work because you're constantly waiting for something to jump out behind a corner and spook you. And bakers, well, bakers have to wait for bread to rise. And then after it's risen, they have to put it in the oven and wait for it to bake. 
To be sure, it is a eclectic list of things, but it's far from complete. In fact, it would be much easier for us to list the things that don't have to do with waiting than the things that do have to do with waiting. The reality of time, I mean, the very existence of future and our ability to anticipate it means that we wait for practically everything. We wait in lines, in traffic, and on hold. We wait for phone calls, for packages to arrive, for teams to call sports plays. Waiters wait on you. Doctors have waiting rooms. Given it is such a huge part of your life, how do you do with waiting? Do you cram your time so full that you don't have any time to wait so other people have to wait on you? Do you anxiously examine every possible outcome so that when whatever happens, you're really ready for it? Maybe you just fill your waiting time with real or fictionalized things that other people do, scrolling social media. How do you wait? Not, not just in the day-to-day, not, not just for appointments and doctor visits, but for life-defining events. Graduation, doctor's test results. How do you wait? When you're in pain and hurting, how do you wait? When you're frustrated and you just want to get things done, how do you wait? Now, perhaps you find yourself already this morning waiting for the sermon to be over. And I hear you. Another sermon about waiting. Come on, it's not even Advent anymore. Why on earth are we talking about waiting when we've just spent four weeks talking about waiting? Well, primarily because it's the center focus of our text today. But also because it is a theme that is familiar to all of God's people. I've already read the passage to you. So you've already heard that Mary and Joseph were waiting to go to the temple. Simeon had been waiting. Anna, and though she knew, had been waiting. And then when Jesus was there, when God himself arrived in the flesh, they had to wait. They had to wait because he had to grow up. And even after he was grown, when he'd begun his public ministry, he was constantly healing people and telling them, don't tell anyone. It's not my time yet. They had to wait. And then when it was his time, when he was crucified, died, and buried, the disciples had to wait. And then after he was resurrected and ascended into heaven, he told them, go and wait for the helper that I will pour out on you. And now we, people on the other side of all of those things, those who cling to and believe and trust in Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Those who have been given the Holy Spirit, those who have the very word of God, find ourselves waiting for his return. Friends, waiting is uncomfortable. Waiting is a humbling thing because waiting admits that you cannot do whatever it is you are waiting for. You are incapable, so you can only wait. 
Waiting is not passive, however, because waiting is not neutral. And you know this to be true. You've experienced this. Suppose, imagine you're on a road trip with friends or family and you find yourself smack in the middle of a traffic jam. How do you wait? Do you get frustrated that you have to wait? Do you worry about all the things that might not come to fruition because of the wait? Or do you realize you're surrounded by people you love and care for and choose to engage with them? Maybe it looks like a car game or maybe a rich discussion that could only take place in the confined reality of a vehicle. Perhaps a prayer for whatever slow traffic or maybe, maybe you just crank up the music and have a seatbelted dance party. Is your waiting wasted or do you redeem your waiting? How do you wait? It is the lens we will look at our text through this morning, asking what is perhaps the more important question. How does God redeem our waiting? How does God redeem our waiting? We will see answers under three headings. Through the unfolding plan of the Father, the unveiling work of the Spirit, and the incarnate reality of the Son. How does God redeem our waiting? Through the unfolding plan of the Father, verses 22 through 24. The unveiling work of the Spirit, verses 25 through 38. And the incarnate reality of the Son, verses 39 and 40. Beginning with the unfolding plan of the Father. Verse 22. And when the time had come for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem and presented him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay. What on earth is going on here. This is a 74-word sentence with three different allusions to Levitical Old Testament practices, which means that it can very easily feel overwhelming and confusing and as clear as mud. So let's take it piece by piece and draw the meaning out. When the time came simply means 40 days after Jesus was born. See, a woman was ceremonially ceremonially unclean for a total of 40 days after a baby was born. The first seven days, she was just completely unclean. And then on the eighth day, the baby boy was circumcised. And then after 33 more days of waiting, she could finally go to the temple to be cleansed of her ceremonially uncleanness. And we see... Jesus' circumcision, these things happening just just in the passage immediately prior to this one. And so, following this time of 40 days, Mary and Joseph are now going to make an offering to become ceremonially clean. In addition to this, they are bringing the very infant Jesus with him to dedicate him to the Lord because he is the firstborn and he is a son. So he is to be set aside for the Lord. Why must they go through this ritual cleaning? Why is Mary unclean? Well, partially because childbirth is legitimately messy. And there were very strict laws about how the Jews could interact with blood and other bodily fluids. 
Some rabbis of later centuries said that it's because in bringing a life into the world, the mother approaches the veil between life and death. And so it is as if she has touched a dead body. So she is unclean. But mainly, mainly this is a reminder that even the miraculous act of bringing a human being into the world is not free from the marks of the fall. It was a reminder to Israel that even in childbirth, their children needed to be cleansed because everyone is born unclean. Everyone is born guilty of sin. Well, almost everyone. There is, of course, one notable exception. Christ was born needing no cleansing, which many theologians argue means that following his birth, Mary and Joseph needed no cleansing. And yet, even in this, Christ submits to being born under the law and to keeping it. He doesn't just keep it with his own actions. No, as the divine and sovereign God, he actually keeps it with the actions of his parents, how they act towards him. And so a series of laws and customs established 1,300 years before this serve to continue the unfolding plan of the Father. As these statutes and regulations dictate that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus arrive at this place at exactly this moment as the third person of the Trinity brings Simeon on a collision course with his Messiah. Our second point, the unveiling work of the Spirit, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now this is absolutely everything that we know about this man, Simeon. He's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. There have been many guesses and suggestions as to who he could be more specifically. Most specifically, claiming that he's the father of Gamaliel, who's the famous Pharisee who trained up the Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul, later the apostle Paul. Unfortunately, all such claims are dubious at best. In fact, to dispel some, some common things that are taught, the text never represents Simeon as being blind before meeting Jesus as some traditions teach. Nowhere do we have any assertion that he is a rabbi or a high priest as other claim. In fact, we're not even told for certain that he's an old man. Now, it is likely that he was an old man, given that he is juxtaposed to Anna, who we're told is 84. And the text's assertion that he would not die before seeing the Messiah. But that is not an explicit claim that he is aged. And that promise could have been given to a 20-year-old man, fulfilled the next year. Why not? We have no idea how old Simeon was, and we have no idea how long he waited. Was it days Decades? We just don't know. What we do know about Simeon, though, is far, far more interesting than speculating on what we don't. We know that he was righteous and devout and that he awaited the consolation of Israel. This means that he walked in the way of the Lord with consistency, looking forward to the time that the Messiah would come. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, to be sure, not in him, Luke is careful with his prepositions. 
This is decades before Christ ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit will not be poured out to indwell God's people until after that. But this does not mean that the Spirit has been absent from creation prior to Pentecost. It is not as though he hovered over the waters and then napped after creation was over. No, friends, he's been active in all of human history. He has regenerated all true believers. He anointed prophets to speak to his people, priests to intercede for them, and kings to rule them well. So it ought not surprise us to see that the Holy Spirit is active. What should surprise us is what he revealed to Simeon. Verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, again, we have to note, there are so few details as to how this happens. Was it in a dream? A thought that popped into his head and just wouldn't go away? Did Simeon hear the Spirit audibly speak to him? Was it a deep conviction that he felt more than he thought? Luke just doesn't say But what we do know is that the Spirit was directly at work in unveiling the reality of the incarnation. Verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and we'll get to Simeon's song in just a moment, but first, what does Luke mean when he says that Simeon came in the spirit into the temple? Was Simeon walking in a sort of trance-like state? Maybe his head was surrounded by a, a cloud of golden glitter. Friends, I doubt it very much. Much more likely, the spirit compelled him to go to the temple at this exact moment, perhaps overtly, but probably Subtly, probably in a way that Simeon himself was not even aware of in that moment. Friends, isn't this how you usually experience the work of the Spirit? To be sure, there are times when it is blatant and obvious, but far more often it is subtle and it's only realized retrospectively. No, what makes the unveiling work of the Spirit blatant here is not so much that Simeon is here when Jesus is here, not that he came in the Spirit, but how he responds to Christ. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So now, Simeon is content to die. This world holds nothing more for him. Friends, what could it possibly offer? He has seen the Messiah. He doesn't need to see Christ's miracles, his crucifixion, or even his resurrection. He believes. He knows Christ is the salvation. He sees a baby, and he knows How? Because the Spirit reveals it to him. I mean, if Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16, after Peter's seen all these miracles and heard all this teaching from Jesus, and Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, blessed are you because the Spirit revealed that to you. 
If that's true of Peter who saw all of those things, how much more true must it be of Simeon who only sees a baby? Friends, can you echo his words? When you gaze upon your Savior, when you feast at his table, is this how you respond? Could you pray this prayer or does the world still entice you? Do you still have things that you must accomplish? Things that you need to experience? What plus Jesus do you need to be content with your time here on earth? Ask the real question. What are you actually waiting for? The answer for Simeon is Jesus. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant seems to be on the forefront of his mind because he sings here that Jesus is to bring illumination to Gentiles fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Be the glory of Israel, again, Abrahamic covenant language. And these, for a Jew, are bold claims. So look at how Joseph and Mary, who, by the way, just had their children, their child taken from their arms by a stranger, respond to Simeon's song. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. There are two noteworthy things here. First, Joseph is called Jesus' father. It's because he is. Not biologically, of course, but he is his father by adoption, which means that he is every bit his father, as if he had been his biological father. Second, Notice how Mary and Joseph respond to this song. They marvel. Now, they are not astonished. They are not blown away. They are not gobsmacked. This is not new information. They named their baby Jesus because an angel told them that he was going to free the world from sin. They're already on board. They know this already. But they can't help but be moved and marvel. When was the last time you marveled at the truth of the gospel? When was the last time you did what Simeon does and reminded someone of the truth of the gospel? Dear friends, that is the work, the unveiling work that the Spirit does. He persuades and enables you to marvel at the truth of the gospel and then the same Spirit empowers you to go tell others to remind your waiting brothers and sisters of the realest and truest thing. So how do you do here? I mean, in your Monday through Saturday, when you pause and read God's word by yourself or with your family, do you find yourself moved? Perhaps you don't even find yourself moved to pause and read God's word. Friends, if this is a struggle for you, if you are not personally moved by the gospel, then I implore you, cry out to God. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Please rekindle my love for you. Pray with full confidence that your prayers are heard and answered because you know that your Father in heaven loves you because of the work of Christ. You see what he is willing to do for you. Christ's work brings us back to our text here. 
Verse 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon continues prophesying to Mary about Jesus' life. And since we have the entirety of Luke's gospel and three others, we know that all of this is true. Jesus will cause many to rise and fall in Israel. He will elevate the poor and despise to sit at the table of the Davidic king. He will cause, cause the fall of the religious elites. He will also reveal the thoughts of many by a sign that is opposed. That sign is the cross. It is opposed to everything about who Jesus is. It is a place for death and he is the life. It is a place for criminals. He is the innocent one. It is a place for suffering. He is the source of all goodness. It is a place for shame and he is the beloved son. It is opposed to everything he is. And it is where the sword of sorrow will pierce Mary's own soul as she sees her son and savior die for her sins. The cross will ultimately reveal everyone's thoughts and it certainly did at the time. It revealed the deepest and darkest thoughts of even Jesus' closest followers as everyone but John ran away. But not now. Not yet. Not in this passage. It doesn't happen here. It's only foretold. In fact, instead of people scattering away, here in our passage, someone new to our story draws near. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. We now meet Anna. And we get to know so much more about her than we ever got to know about Simeon. I mean, we know her family background, her dad's name. We don't know anything about her dad, but we know what tribe she comes from. We also know her life story a little bit, that she was married for seven years. And then when her husband died, probably 60-ish years ago, she's lived as a widow, never married again, probably because she's barren, given the fact that she was married for seven years and doesn't have any children. We also know what she was like. She spent her time at the temple, fasting and praying, which are waiting acts. Fasting is not fasting if it doesn't have an eye toward a feast at the end of the fast. Other, we just call that starving. Praying is not praying apart from waiting for the God that you cry out to. Prayer is only prayer because you wait for God to act. Apart from waiting, praying is nothing more than positive thinking. Waiting is such an integral part of Anna's practice that Luke can summarize her actions as praying and fasting at the temple, which Anna did so much that Luke says she never left the temple. Now, of course, sometimes Anna does leave the temple. It's an exaggeration for the sake of effect. And you understand this because we do this all the time. 
See, I just did it right there. We don't do it all the time, but I exaggerated for effect and you knew exactly what I was talking about. You, you've probably said about someone before, oh, they live somewhere other than their home. And you know, they actually don't live there. They live at home. Yeah, that, that's exactly what Luke is doing here. And as interesting as that is, the, to see the habitual habits of Anna and how that has shaped her, perhaps the most interesting thing about her is her office. Because Luke calls her a prophetess, which should strike our ears as insane for a few reasons, but one of them being that word shows up nowhere else in the Bible except for in the book of Revelation. One other time, that's it, all of the Bible. But how can this be that she's a prophetess in this period of silence? I mean, Israel hasn't had a prophet for 400 years. Luke doesn't explain. He just says, that's what she is. Now we can draw a couple of conclusions though. First, notice this is a biblical anomaly. And it is descriptive in nature. This means we must be very careful to draw any sort of conclusions about how things ought to be or any new sort of norm. Second, we have seen many other anomalous occurrences around the incarnation, which is no surprise because the incarnation is the greatest anomaly in all of eternity. And so here we have a prophetess which should make us notice something strange is going on here. And she just so happens to be there when Simeon is praising Christ. What is much more elucidating than her identity and her title is her response to that. Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She hears the good news and she goes and spreads it. She begins telling others, the Messiah has been born. Again, she sees no miracles like the Pharisees will demand. She responds with simple childlike faith. And this, coupled with her title of prophetess, makes it abundantly clear that the Holy Spirit was on her too. Notice to whom she speaks. She doesn't do what Simeon does and speak to those who already know. No. She takes this message to those who are waiting. And she speaks to them. She takes it to those who deeply need to know but are completely unaware. So friends, how do you do here? Are you quick to share the good news of Christ, especially with those who you know desperately need to hear it? Your boss, your family, your neighbors, your friends. It is one of the ways your waiting is redeemed through the unveiling work of the Spirit. To be sure, that work must first be done in you, but then you are brought into that work. You are to remind those who know and to tell those who don't. Your waiting is redeemed through the unfolding plan of the Father as you partner in the unveiling work of the Spirit. And finally now, the incarnate reality of the Son. Verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. So following this, Joseph and Mary go home. 
Now, particularly well-readers, well-read readers among you uh, may be wondering, <clears throat> hang on a second, Riker, uh, Mr. Kempel, uh, what about Egypt? What, 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 what about the Magi? Luke doesn't mention them. Not because it didn't happen. Luke never says it didn't happen. Luke almost certainly was even aware that it happened. It just is not necessary for Luke's purposes. Matthew includes the trip to Egypt because Matthew wrote his gospel to Jews to show them that Christ is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies. But Luke feels no such compunction. He is a Gentile, writing to a Gentile audience. So he skips over the Magi, skips over the trip to Egypt, and just says, they went home. He leaves it at that. Then, he very quickly summarizes all of Jesus' childhood, from 40 days old to 12 years old, in 18 words. Jesus grew up to be wise, strong, which means he grew in every way that a human can grow because he was fully human, and the favor of the Lord was on him. And it's that last line, the favor of the Lord was on him, that really drives home just how absurdly outlandish and bizarre this whole story really is. You really expect me to believe that God would choose to place his Messiah in a backwater, nothing little town like Nazareth? It's almost 100 miles away from Jerusalem where anything that is anything happens to anyone who is anyone. Not only that, but you expect me to believe that God decided his Messiah would come from a family like this? Not just unsophisticated Galileans, but a family so poor his mother couldn't even afford a proper sacrifice of a lamb. And so she bought two birds. Friends, this is not a Hallmark movie. This is reality. And Simeon would have looked like an absolute fool. Anna would have sounded senile. Mary and Joseph would have appeared immoral because they have a wedding date and a child's birthday that don't quite match up. The reality of the incarnation is that it appears utterly preposterous. So judgy outside observers judge, but they don't even know the half of it. They have no idea that this blessed baby is God in the flesh. They have no idea that the creator of everything will live a life of extreme poverty. They have no idea that the light of the world who gives life to all men will be snuffed out and that he will die. And they have no idea that the sinless one would bear the sins of his people. See, they have no idea of the unfolding plan of the Father because they lack the unveiling work of the Spirit so they cannot see the incarnate reality of the Son. Do you, friends, do you, do you realize that this baby, when fully grown, would not just die for you? He would. But then he would take his own life back up and live forever so that you may have life in his name. Do you realize that this resurrected Christ ascended into heaven, never again tasting death, and now sits at his Father's right hand interceding for you? Because nothing else can redeem your waiting. My friends, you are invited into the unfolding plan of the Father. You are to be used in the unveiling work of the Spirit. You are to spread the message of the incarnate reality of the Son. You're waiting has been redeemed.
It is not passive. It is not neutral. And so may we be a people who wait well. Would we realize that God has redeemed our waiting? Would we be quick to praise him for it? And would we tell others about it? Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we know that you alone are author and enactor of past, present, and future. We praise you for your sovereignty. We thank you that you are active, that you invited us to share in your work. We thank you that Christ will return. Please shape us into a people that eagerly await your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.